y'all. I'm Evie. And I'm Bernie. And you're listening to Woke Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine and health justice. For our last episode of our summer series, we are talking with Dr. Paula and Dr. Trevaney, both physician activists of the UCSF Primary Care Addiction Medicine Fellowship. In this episode, we talk more about the roots of the socially constructed phenomena of the opioid epidemic. In addition, we talk about how structural and social determinants have affected historical and current drug epidemics, including the rising methamphetamine epidemic going on now. We most importantly talk about how health professionals must destigmatize the culture of shame around drug use, both in patient care and within our institutions. In addition, we talk about resources in our hospitals and communities addressing these issues. We hope this episode serves as a call to action for many people to address personal and institutional biases about people and communities affected by the rise of current drug epidemics. We hope this episode brings compassion and humanity to these very real issues of our communities. So stay woke, y'all, and thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so grateful to be here with you, lovely ladies. And as always, we're starting off with a check-in question and following with our theme this summer of having a summer-related check-in question, I'm going to ask you guys, what is your sound of the summer? And that could be of like a song. It could just be the sound of the ocean waves, whatever. Um, mm. I will go first. I was like, wait, that, maybe that's my favorite sound. <laughs> wait, that was going to be mine. Bernie yeah. has a new answer. Yeah. <laughs> the, sound, the sound of the ocean waves for everyone. Yeah. Um, no, I couldn't think of like one specific sound. So I was thinking, okay, what is a song that I really like that I listen to in the summertime? And honestly, my summer playlist, like it changes every year. And a song that I've been playing a lot this summer is Brown Skin Girl by Beyonce. I feel like she just, she just released mm. that with her new album, uh, The Lion King, The Gift. And I first heard it and I was like, oh, this is cute. But then I really started listening to it. And I was like, wow, this is so awesome to have an anthem for like myself and for women who look like me with darker skin and just for us to be celebrated. Mm. And I feel like it's just been something I've really been able to bump to this summer like you've been bumping it i really have I see been, you've been bumping like it. moving and just okay, moving and grooving moving so that is my song of the summer hey. um and now i'm going to ask one of our guests trevaney what is your sound of the summer it could be a song it could be anything you like hmm i think it's the that sort of sound of like kids playing outside and in the pool it's like mm. a sort of Ooh, distant like sound you know it's like a distant <laughs> non-specific like background, background yeah. sound of like kids splashing around and yelling outside mm. it's nice i can hear That's them now yeah, yeah right it's like sesame street or something it just brings <laughs> back childhood like the giggles and the splashing water yeah yes. i love it yes bernie how about you yeah um well the only thing that comes to mind right now is just the sound in the morning after i do my morning routine i've been blasting a lot of salsa music specifically celia cruz and my intern for freedom clinic ina is also here with us during this recording and me and ina are gonna go salsa bachating this this weekend and so i just love how in the summer, I just feel for some reason like more free in my body and more free to just like move and groove and like just like have that sunlight again, like allow my blissful brown skin to like pop and then also just like dance and like celebrate and be joyful. So, yeah, that's my sound of the summer. 
Love um, it. Yeah, Paula. I guess for me, it, it is the sound of the summer waves. So mm. I'm from Hawaii, and every summer I go home, and I stay at the beach, and I listen to the ocean while I go to sleep. And it's it's like the restorative thing. I know mm. you guys talk a lot about how do you take care of yourself, and mm-hmm. for me, it's being in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so it's the sound of the water. People's mm-hmm. vacation spot is your home. That is, <laughs> That's that amazing. Is, honestly, yeah. yeah, that is a blessing. People are putting that on to like fall asleep every night here. Meanwhile, mm. you're like, oh, this is just where I live. Well, Sprinton, you grew up there, right? Right. And now can visit. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. We just want to thank you guys so much for being here. Yes. And this is, yeah, Paula Trevani, we are so excited to have your wisdom on this podcast, especially as so much of the news and the media, and especially in, in health justice work, we're talking about these buzzwords of the opioid epidemic and like what do we do with the war on drugs. And really, um, a lot of people have a lot of assumptions and they have a lot of misinformation about these topics that we're really hoping that this episode can demystify. And especially really going deeper into, again, like what's really the bigger picture of these issues? and also just like what are all of the other different social justice issues that are intersecting with these different drug epidemics how are y'all being badasses in your work and such like huge warriors for that and um like what can we really do about it and how can we really just like deconstruct a lot of what the media is telling us and really um take in information that is key to making sure that our communities are safe and healed and loved and so thank you again for being here with us we appreciate it um, our first question is really, um, Paul, I love this, when we reached out to you and we were like, we really want to do an episode on the op- opioid epidemic, you're like, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, let's, let's terminology actually, though. Yeah, like, let's step back, actually, and let's really see, like, what does, what does this term really mean? And I really love that, and I appreciated you really saying that. So what are the roots of this kind of socially constructed phenomena of the quote-unquote opioid epidemic that is a huge buzzword today? Yeah. I mean, so it's really interesting because I think before we started calling it an opioid epidemic, people were, I think, maybe even more accurately calling it an opioid overdose epidemic because I think that's where all the real tragedy is and mm-hmm. how many people have died. Um, but, you know, people have been using drugs and dying for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess my challenge w- to you when you reached out to me is like, do we need to focus on the opioid epidemic? Because, you know, there are other drug epidemics that have been going on for a long time, and there's a new one coming up with methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really kind of challenge, you know, like to think about how can we maybe look at this more historically and into the future and um, uh, what are the things that connect them. Yeah, I really love that. And so when you say that, when you pointed out like why now are we all of a sudden doing the opioid epidemic, why do, you, why do y'all think that is? Why do, it seemed like it all of a sudden just kind of like popped up and then like major public health initiatives and commissioners were like, this is a crisis, this is a crisis. Mm-hmm. Why, why now? Is there any reason behind that? You know, I think that um, 
race plays a large role in this, and there's been some really beautiful pieces about that, I think, in the New York Times and some other nice articles that I know Paula has, has shared, but, um, but really kind of talking about the, the whiteness of the epidemic and bringing that to the attention of the public um, is something that kind of colored the public's view of it early on, and, and I'm hoping that we can kind of demystify that and, and jump into that a little bit further, especially by sort of exploring some of our experiences as providers with individual patients and understanding their lives more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of demystifying, like, what are some of the misconceptions that people have regarding the opioid epidemic? Like, as you said, Paula, people have been doing drugs and dying of drugs for years and years, for <laughs> decades, centuries now. Um, so can you just tell us more about like, the misconceptions that people may have regarding this particular epidemic and just also people who use drugs and overdoses and, and things like that? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would add to that people have been using drugs for a long time, and yes, they've been dying from drugs, but they've also um, uh, been feeling good from drugs and enjoying themselves um, through drugs. And so I guess one of the things you want to demystify is this, this idea of um, you know, making drug use the enemy. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why people use drugs. And uh, Bernie and I chatted a little bit about it, but in my mind, there's only two reasons why people use drugs. And one is to feel good, and the other is to feel better. Mm -hmm. And uh, people may start out saying, hey, this feels great, and this is why I want to do it. You know, we, we're, we're teenagers, we're young, we're invincible, we want to try things out, we want to experiment and um, have, have um, pleasurable experiences with our peers um, and then you know as life goes on and people use drugs maybe in a little bit more of a habitual way or in a less health healthy way it becomes less about feeling good and it becomes more about feeling better or uh, as one of my friends who works at the syringe service program is it's about feeling less bad and so, you know, a lot of people that I work with now who use drugs um, uh, through addiction medicine are really using drugs to not feel um, some of the really bad experiences they've had in their life, whether it's childhood traumas, whether it's violence and oppression, whether it's homelessness, um, poverty. So for me, that's kind of where we get down to like the real basics of like, why do people use drugs? and and you know, I'll meet with a patient and I'm like, of course you're using drugs. You know, mm -hmm. after I hear their story, I'm like, I'd be using too, right? I don't, I would not want to be in your headspace every day um, because that's pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's good reasons why people use drugs. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to all the, the whiteness of the opioid epidemic. I think that's such an important thing and I think it's, really important also with this historical context of um, how we see that with the whiteness of the opioid epidemic, there is an ignorance of like historical factors of how other communities of color have been affected by drugs. And what comes to mind are black communities and COINTELPRO. Um, for a lot of listeners who don't know, COINTELPRO was actually a government operation of which crack cocaine was introduced to many urban communities, many of them black and brown communities, 
and the type of rhetoric that had resulted from that, of which we're still seeing today, are that these communities are producing crack babies, they're welfare queens, they're actually um, taking advantage of a lot of welfare benefits. And it's so interesting that response to drugs in certain communities of color, whereas uh, with the opioid epidemic, we see that when a certain population, when, um, when whiteness is seen as the face of an epidemic, then it's seen as an emergency. And so I don't know if you also have any other comments to um, relate to that comment that you said on like the race of, uh, the race factor of the, opioid, of the opioid epidemic, but that has always been very interesting to me, and I'm really glad that there's a lot of literature popping out on that, mm -hmm. but to really like zoom out and realize that it's part of this huge bigger picture and that yes, one community is being uplifted, but really like so many other communities are being so ignored. And it's like, what is our responsibility with that to really know that historical context? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for so long, you know, drug use has been demonized and people who use drugs have been demonized. And there's been such a longing on the part of, of people who, who treat persons who use drugs to really not see this whole concept of, you know, moral weakness or moral failing of their patients. And so this great desire, you know, to in some ways medicalize um, the disease of addiction, which, you know, in some ways is, is too one-sided as well. Um, but at least if you can do that, then you can argue for treatment. And you combine that whole, like, we want to get away from this moral argument to this medical argument with the idea that your patient is an innocent victim of... Um, an evil doctor <laughs> who <laughs> prescribed them opioid analgesics for their, I don't know, for their tooth extraction or their broken angle, and after that be they became addicted and through no fault of their own. So that's why this is an emergency, right? And so we've got to treat these innocent victims. Very different story from the crack epidemic in mm -hmm. the 1980s, mm -hmm. right? Where mm -hmm. um, the whole concept of well, even today, we have this concept that is totally inaccurate of babies being born addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. So the idea of you know a crack baby being, um, um, for lack of a better word, the victim of child abuse by mm -hmm. their mother who was using and, and then was born, quote unquote, addicted. I mean, they still have that concept when they talk about babies who are born to moms who are using opioids as well. Um, and that's a whole nother piece of wax when you kind of bring in the maternal piece, like the mother and the innocent child, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the weird thing is so you get all this attention on this innocent victim, this innocent bystander, and you get money, right? Mm -hmm. So this is when the government starts throwing money and uh, pr actually providing the money we really need to like get treatment to people. There's so much that we do now that we could have never done if people didn't wake up and say, hey, you no, know, Congress, we got to pass this bill so that we can get some more money to pay for medications to actually treat, as opposed to sending people to, you know, treatment programs that are not necessarily evidence-based. So it's very, it's a very kind of twisted mm. reality that we're living in where we're really appreciative of the funding, right? Wow. But um, some of the reasons about why that funding was granted don't necessarily sit right. 
I always also have to make an effort to add alcohol to this conversation mm-hmm. um, because I think one thing that this this epidemic or crisis and attention has has brought is a lot of focus on on opioids. Um, and you know we've brought up stimulants a little bit already, like cocaine, like methamphetamine, um, but alcohol is actually the substance that causes the the greatest harms, um, and in some communities in particular, the greatest harms. Um, so I know just sort of to 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 share, um, I, I worked in a native community as a physician and um, in a rural area, and there was a ton of sudden attention on opioids and um, and we just had to really spend a lot of resources and time mm-hmm. on like opioid stewardship in our hospital and uh, meanwhile we were literally taking care of young people dying of mm-hmm. alcohol use disorder every single day wow. every single day wow. and um, had very very few resources to approach those patients with so I really felt that living sort of that that tension of um, you know appreciation of a light on the resources that are needed to look at substance use disorder, but also the type of um, focus that can be too narrow on, on yeah. opioids. And I think we you know we call that siloing, right? So mm-hmm. you see everything is put into silos and. You know, I guess there's a reason for that. You know, the government likes to put things in boxes, like here's mental health, here's substance use, you know, Mm. here's HIV. Everything's a different um, agency. It's a different funding stream. Um, And that becomes really complicated. So something that we're dealing with now is um, we live in a city where they looked at homeless deaths for the last year. And most of the deaths are drug-related deaths. And... And most of those deaths are actually due to methamphetamine as opposed to opioids. And we have programs that are being funded from the federal government, the state government, that your patient is eligible if they use opioids and have an opioid use disorder. But if they have a stimulant use disorder and not an opioid use disorder, there's really not that much we can do for them. So that's kind of this example of this siloing that just doesn't really work. I mean, it's great for people who, and yes, there's a huge need you know, to prevent overdoses, but at the same time, we have people who just use methamphetamine, but their methamphetamine is contaminated with fentanyl, and they're mm-hmm. gonna die of an opiate overdose, um, not even meaning to. So it's way more interconnected than focusing on one drug. If so what has always kind of puzzled me and still confuses me, and I don't know if you have a clear answer to this, but in terms of like hospitals, big pharma, and government, I see those as being very interconnected and uh, playing with each other. How, how are they interconnected? I know that you have like briefed that in your answers, but is there a clearer way that me and like our listeners can see that picture of how big pharma impacts the hospital directives, and also you also mentioned how policy initiatives then direct hospital directives, but then it seems like pharma is also influencing government. So is there a more clear picture on how we can visualize all of that? Should I just say like, you know, pharma's evil? (laughs) (laughs) You can say it if that's how you feel. Um, Pharma's evil, (laughs) y'all. 
Um, and and you know you there's a big game going on right in terms of marketing and influence. Um, medical schools now, most medical schools now don't let pharmaceutical reps come on campus, right? Um, yeah, here we don't do that. Um, but it used to be really common practice. I mean, who bought lunch for noon conference, right? Mm. Um, the, who brought, you know, gifts and whatever. So, um, there is, there's a big move to like separate pharma from medical education. That's not to say that it doesn't still happen in nefarious ways. Um, just when we use brand names, right? We're doing free marketing for pharmaceutical companies. So kind of skipping ahead a little bit to like, you know, what you can do and what we can do is we can use generic names instead of brand names, right? Um, and, you know, what organizations do we belong to? Do we um, join organizations that receive funding from pharmaceutical companies? Um, is it matter whether it's um, a non-restricted educational grant where allegedly there's no marketing that comes with it? Is that enough, or is it even just the perception of being part of an organization that has some sort of relationship, even if it's it's um, has a firewall? Is that okay? Um, I'm really troubled by that. Um, and you know, as to the relationship between pharma and the government, I mean, that's a really tough one. Um, so in in my world, where I also do research. I do addiction research. I do research with people who use drugs and treating their substance use disorder with a medication. And I can't do that research without either buying the medication from mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical company or mm -hmm. having them donate it mm -hmm. as a, you know, quote unquote, not necessarily a gift, but a, a donation mm -hmm. and keep, keep that donation separate from the conduct of the study and the research findings and, you know, not allowing the pharmaceutical company to comment on um, the data or the results of the study um, in exchange for them having given me the medication. Wow. So there's a lot of kind of tricky relationships that you kind of have to work through. Mm -hmm. um, this is probably very different from where you're going in terms of like where's the the pharmaceutical, the opioid makers and the pharmaceutical companies and the distributors and what was their hand in um, flooding communities with with drug. That's, yeah, that's a separate thing. Um, I don't know, Trevini, you want to pick up on that piece? I was like, is that a thing? I think there's, we're just hearing more and more, we're hearing more and more about it. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, what's happened with opioids and, and big pharma isn't, necessarily different than what happens with a lot of different medications and a lot of different, you know, diseases. Um, but, but we're hearing a lot about it. And, um, you know, I feel really lucky that I practice in California because we actually have quite a bit of access to medications to treat substance use disorder um, that not all not all providers do that are practicing in other states or other places. Um, and we can, and our, and our patients have 
quite a lot of benefits to get medications like buprenorphine for free mm -hmm. um, in a way that some don't. So the barriers to getting treatment for opioid use disorder have, have really been lowered, I think, over the last few years, um, and, and we're quite lucky here. Yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate that I think we have a local government and, and people in our state government who really look at the evidence around what treatments work and support um, making those treatments accessible to patients. And you're right, Trevini, we're so lucky. There, there are cities and states where, especially cities or states that you know didn't sign up for the Affordable Care Act, where access is gonna be a lot tougher. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you guys so much. This is all so informative. And also, I was just reflecting because as you guys were talking about how frustrating it's been for you as physicians to see sort of all the emphasis put on this, uh, especially with it becoming, uh, affecting more white communities and now how we're watching people care more. It just made me reflect on, I had a recent experience with a patient who uh, was taking opioids to deal with chronic pain and he was saying that he was running out of medication early um, and he needed refills sooner and the doctor was saying, you know, I, I can't do that. Um, I'm sorry, like, I, I legally cannot be giving you more. This is at the VA, like this, there's no way that this can happen. And the patient just said, you know, I feel like no one really cared about opioids until this started affecting white people. This was a African-American man. And so he's just like this, and he, an older man, he's just like, it just feels so frustrating because I feel like now there's all this dialogue around it. Like no one cared about this, you know, when I, when I needed this 20, 30 years ago or like how it was affecting me. And now, now everybody cares and I can't get my medication and okay, I can't get my medication. So what will I do to cope? I guess I'll just have to drink now. And just like the ways mm. that people are coping and mm. that just yeah. really affected me yeah. hearing that. Mm. Um, yeah. And just thinking about how for, these communities of color who um, have also experienced the same issues for years um, mm -hmm. that we really uh, made, we just put the blame on them for like, oh, you're doing drugs and this is all on you. And like how we sort of just completely shifted the conversation um, to be like, oh, like you said, like this, this victim, the victimizing of like, oh, it's the doctors who are prescribing these things. And now, you know, we need to, we need to act differently. and. It just made me think of all that. So like how it's affecting like Ooh. the care that the physicians are providing, but then also just how patients may feel like, I don't know. It just made me think of lots Good. of feelings. Lots Kudos of feelings. to y'all. This is really tough work. Like there are so many chains <laughs> and yeah. like the fact that y'all are like being such warriors in a very difficult fight is just like, thank you for all the information you've shared. It's like super awesome. Um, without, there are, there's so much that we need to do, and I think the first thing that you had mentioned, Paula, during our conversation was really centering on the destigmatization of this culture of shame around drug use. Um, and so how can we really do that, y'all, in, in patient care, mm -hmm. and also like within our institutions? So this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> Yay! Go in. Go so much, please. Yeah. So I mean, you know, what does it take to dismantle a whole culture of stigma mm. and then internalize shame on the part of a patient? Mm -hmm. And that's where I really feel like people who are in the health professions, so you guys as, as you know, up and coming physicians who are gonna like carry this light forward. Um, it's a, how do you treat people, uh, really how do you treat any person? And, and um, 
in my work, I treat a lot of people who use drugs. And in addiction medicine, we like to say, you know, communication is our procedure. Mm. Um, surgeons have procedures. Gastroenterologists have colonoscopies. Pulmonologists have bronchoscopies. And, and for us, you know, communication is our procedure. So it's really, mm. how do you talk to a patient, you know, how do you make space for a patient to talk to you? Mm. Um, and, you know, how, how, do you, how does that turn out to be a therapeutic relationship, right? Because you, you have patients that come into the hospital and they're like, yeah, the doctors all stood up around me and I was like lying on my bed and they're towering above me and mm. they're all talking mm. down at me and I don't yeah. understand a word that they're saying, mm. yeah. right? So... Um, for you guys as medical students that are about to come under the wards, just being conscious of your body language, mm-hmm. right? What's your relationship? Can you be on the same level as your patient? I'm notorious for like walking into the room and like putting chairs around the bed so we can all sit down together mm-hmm. rather than tower over a patient. Or sometimes I'm just like lifting the bed up and the patient's just rising up like this big birthday cake. <laughs> and But then you're actually talking to a patient That's eye beautiful. to eye. So there's body language, yeah. but then there's also the language that you use, the words that you use. And Trevani can talk a little bit more about the words. Yeah, the language. The language is so, um, it's so important and it's so, um, it's like our intervention. I think it's like our most effective intervention is literally Mm. the language that we put in our notes and that we use when we talk to other providers. Um, Because I think that, you know, when I was training, which was not that long ago and for a long time, you know, and you still see it, it, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of terms that are just thrown around and that we just learn. Um, Polysubstance abuse, abuse, drug user, drug abuser, um, addict, addict, Mm. clean, dirty, Mm. right? Mm. Yeah. And you don't even really think about it unless somebody teaches you about it. Um, Mm -hmm. because as trainees, we just kind of absorb what our, what the, what our models are, are showing us. And, um, it's, it's been really, um, it's sort of like, I feel like we are like waging a battle in our like notes that we're typing, you know? Um, so there's really a movement to change the narrative um, around the terminology that we use um, and the dialect that we use when we talk about people who use drugs and um, to be people first, to talk about people first, people who use drugs instead of drug users, for mm-hmm. example. Um, so that's been really fun to teach and also really challenging. Like, How do we give feedback to our peers in medicine um, around some of this basic language that maybe they've been using for decades, you know, or maybe we we want to give feedback to somebody who's like really senior to us that's using using language that that we're not really okay with. It's it's challenging and it's kind of kind of delicate. Um, yeah. yeah, and so I think one of the keys to doing that is not to take this kind of righteous indignation indignation stance or like this politically correct stance but really it's to insist on using clinically accurate language Mm -hmm. um and to use language that um um i'm trying to think of the word and the word is I'm a, it's escaping me. It's I don't want to use the word stigmatizing. It's it's a, it's it's a different word of like, um, 
like not talking down to people, mm -hmm. basically, mm -hmm. right? So, um, I mean, the most important thing when you when you have a conversation with a patient, I feel is like being in a space where you can see the humanity of that patient and mm -hmm. let them know that they are worthy and deserving of of the reason why they're there. Um, and you know you've hit the sweet spot when like, you know, at the end of the conversation, they're like, I'm so glad you came to see me, right? Mm. Um, and it just that. becomes a, a, a space of gratitude uh, for both us as the providers and for the patients. So that's healing. That's, that's kind of the healing part of that. And I'm, I'm really happy you shared the, the change of language because I feel like that's one um, easy thing that like any healthcare professional can do in terms of just centering the patients as people. Anyone. Yeah, literally anyone. Yeah. yeah, anyone can do this. But I'm just thinking for like mm. healthcare workers because they're the ones like charting and writing and th that type of thing. But really, it is applicable to anyone. Um, and I just really valued making it person centric. And I know, like personally, and I don't know about you, Bernie. I just like lots of children of immigrants. I'm sure like. I feel like there's definitely a culture of like, don't do drugs, bad for you, da 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 da, like whatever the rhetoric may be that may be like internalized within us. And so I think it's great to start with language, but then also I think for a lot of people, there's gonna, you have to do your own unlearning of the things mm -hmm. that you have been um, just like, that have just been indoctrinated into, like from your culture, from your uh, education, from just your, whatever your surroundings are. Um, and so I feel like that's something that, I mean, even me as someone who feels like, oh no, like I totally like agree we should like destigmatize, et cetera. Like what are my still like internal biases that I may have just from like my, my like surroundings mm -hmm. and culture and like upbringing. And I feel like hearing you, Paula say like, why are people doing drugs to feel good or to feel better? When you really think of it like that, it's like, wow. Cause I mean, people don't, talk the same way about alcohol as they do about like people are much more comfortable hearing like their friends went out been drinking and got like blacked out than mm. they are hearing that six someone was like mm. you know doing coke in the bathroom at a party or injecting or things like that um mm. it's like well why are we okay with one and not okay with the other and it's because of like what we've been told to assume about like these certain behaviors versus these other behaviors and so i think when we just remember that they are people who are like I mean, people drink alcohol for the same reasons, right? Like to feel good or to feel better. And if you remember that people who use drugs are doing it for the same exact reason, I feel like that, like, I mean, just even, even though I already knew that, just hearing you say that in that different way was just like, oh, wow, that's another way to view it that's like so powerful. And that I feel like I personally will like take with me going forward, like after this podcast and like try to promote to the masses. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's like feeling good from like, why does this person need to feel better? Exactly. Like, we live in a hard ass world. <laughs> like this is, True. like it is mm -hmm. a hard life. Yeah. And a lot of people have crazy barriers. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I, I just love y'all's presence and I feel it because f from that compassionate language and body language and that intentionality within it, people feel like they are they are not their disease, and they are a, they are a human person that goes through life experiences, and like those that intentionality really makes space for that. And so, really thankful that y'all have pointed that out. Um, 
So who is working towards solutions of this problem? Y'all are, I, I assume that y'all are two of the warriors, but that there are many warriors out there, um, whether in medicine, public health, also in the community, um, working towards um, really healing for this, these issues. Well, um, you know, I'll give props to Paula, who's here with us, because <laughs> she is just exhibiting the kind of mentorship and sponsorship um, mm. by having me here as somebody who's training in addiction medicine as a fellow, which is a totally new thing. An addiction medicine fellowship was not something that existed when I was um, in residency, even. Um, and so, you know, people like Paula on the education side are sort of creating a whole new specialty, um, like a whole new flock of medical providers um, to address addiction medicine. Um, and, you know, providers have been doing it for a long time, but um, having fellowships, for example, having board certification is, is sort of carving out a whole new area of medicine that lends some kind of I don't know, medicalization and sort of, um, it's kind of lifts, lifts up this, this, our patients and, and our mm -hmm. expertise. It's legitimacy. Yeah. I mean, just to, to see it kind of brutally, I mean, you know, the, the whole world of addiction medicine used to be considered, oh, that's where like, you know, doctors who had become, you know, addicted themselves, like they became addiction medicine doctors because that's what they knew. And it wasn't really considered a legitimate um, profession, right? People kind of poo-pooed and said, oh, well, that's because you're in recovery, so you do this kind of medicine. And yes, you know, in, in uh, several decades ago, many of the doctors who practiced were lived experience, right? And that's mm -hmm. kind of the best person to have mm -hmm. as your, your treatment provider is someone who knows what you went through. And then what we've seen over the last, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years is is more people who've gotten involved in it for other reasons. And, you know, for me, it's a social justice mm. reason to be involved in this field. Um, it's because I like taking care of people who are poor and underserved. And there's a lot of drug use and there's a lot of addiction in that population. So that's why I'm there. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of people who are like, doing the research they're sh they're developing the evidence base for like how do we think about what's actually going on at a neurobiological level you know what's going on at a treatment level what medications work what spiritual practices work um, what counseling works um, you know how do you put that all together and this whole field is just really grown because of all these different people converging with all their different experiences and their passions and and, and what drives them and what we have going on now in terms of developing fellowship programs, we, we just in the last year um, have become an ACGME accredited specialty, which is this whole thing about legitimacy That's in the house of medicine. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people are recognizing, yeah. And yeah, it's the opioid epidemic sure has something to do with it, right? So for lack of a you know better label it's it's been helpful helpful in raising awareness and shining the light on the need to train more docs and nurses and midwives um, to 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 care for addiction as you know we keep calling it a disease and I guess it is a disease but it, it's more than a disease right um, 
So, so something really special is happening, and the lovely thing is that there are people all over the country and all over the world who have th this vision and share this vision, and it cuts across all different um, disciplines, and it cuts across all different levels of training. So whether you're a pre-med student or you're like a prefer professor emeritus, I mean, everyone is learning, which is, which is pretty, pretty special. We're at a really amazing time right now. And do you guys have any resources that you would recommend for our listeners to read up on or just learn about to know more about what's going on or educate themselves on, um, I don't know, just anything how to care for those communities or people who use drugs? Yeah. Carry naloxone with them. Like. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's a good one to carry naloxone. And um, you can like watch videos online of even how to use it. It's pretty easy to find a video about it. Um, I always have people like Google recovery dialects to like learn. There's like Google images. You can find this very easily to sort of learn about that language piece that, that we talked about. Mm. Um, yeah, Paul and I were talking about this before, but like. Mm -hmm. There's some great organizations that um, do all kinds of teaching. So whether you want to actually go to a training or you just want to look at their website and download, res download resources, so it's the Harm Reduction Coalition. They're actually based in Oakland in New York. Um, there's the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, uh, as the name says, more involved in drug policy issues. Um, but they've been a very big advocate, at least at the California state level, in terms of getting safe consumption spaces um, into a bill um, to be considered by the California state legislature. So. Do you guys know what safe consumption spaces are? No. So they're also known as supervised injecting facilities. Oh, yes. Right? So it's, <laughs> it's a space sure. where you can go and use pre-obtained um, pre um, drugs in an environment that's sterile um, and has medical staff available so that if you do have a, um, uh, an adverse effect, whether it be you know, an overdose or something related to your drug use, someone can be there to um, intervene and help and save your life. Uh, so that means less people like in bathrooms shooting up in the toilet, right? Where yeah. you're gonna be exposed to all kinds of things and, and no one to help you if you run into trouble. Um, so Drug Policy Alliance is great. Um, uh, uh, local, um, syringe services programs that's what we call needle exchange now that's the official word like syringe access services is what we call them so we have some great programs here in san francisco um you could volunteer there um there's the dope project which is part of um the um harm reduction coalition it stands for the drug overdose and prevention and education and they will come and do trainings for um you as a group and teach you how to use naloxone and how to um, uh, reverse uh, opioid intoxication or overdose. Um, and then you can go down to CBHS Pharmacy at 10th and Howard and get your own supply of naloxone so you can carry it in your backpack. There you go, y'all. Yeah. So much great advice. Mm -hmm. um, so as a final thing for our listeners, do you guys have any just final words of wisdom or anything, last things you'd like to say 
This has been everyone. so informative. I know. And you already so said powerful. you already said so much, so no pressure because there's so many <laughs> gems and pearls that you dropped this evening. But is there anything else you'd like to say? I was gonna share one. I was thinking about what I wanted to share in this, and and I had, I I wanted to steal this amazing this amazing quote that this this person who was actually speaking about like transgender medicine at a conference said, and I just thought it just spoke to me as as just spoke to me as someone who takes care of people who use drugs and it's that we can only lead at the speed of trust mm. and i think that i love that when we work with people who use drugs building trust is the most important thing that we can do as providers and i just i just love that that's beautiful that's how beautiful. can you top that <laughs> thank you so much y'all so we appreciate it this was great thank, thank you, you. Thank you.